0: Uh, one of the things I like to see is uh, staff retention and recruitment as a performance indicator for senior management. So uh, it'd be great if all the senior managers and their performance evaluation um, they're looked at in terms of how are you retaining your staff, how are you promoting them, and how are you networking with other people to bring folks in. It doesn't happen very often. And, and, and throughout the organization, so now we're in the LinkedIn world, which means All the staff could be recruiting all the time. In fact, in fact, they are
1: hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Group Thinkers. I'm your host, Justin McCord, and delighted today to get to spend time and introduce you to Bill Weber of the Development Guild. Now uh, here's the thing. You, you probably know this, but, you know, with each and every episode of Group Thinkers, we highlight or um, I'm joined by someone that's an innovator in nonprofit marketing, someone that's doing something new, different, uh, or fascinating in helping nonprofits on their journey. Bill's no different. Uh, Bill and his team at the Development Guild... Are They're people people. You know, they, they work alongside nonprofits for helping do organizational development, helping do recruitment, uh, and employee retention. And so it's a pleasure to introduce him to the group thinkers audience and, and get his perspective on those things, on organi- on organizational development and capacity building, which is a, a major focus that we've heard from multiple group thinkers guests in the first and second season. Uh, to get his perspective on employee recruitment and employee branding and how to identify and align employees with the mission of your organization so that you can develop uh, more engaged employees, and then keep those employees in what is uh, a hot employment market at this point in time. So it's a really, it's a great chat. Uh, we also spend a little time at the end talking about what Bill's reading. So uh, go ahead and, and listen all the way through so that you can get to that uh, and so, yeah, it's super exciting to, to be able to have him on. Hey, before we jump to the interview itself, be sure to throw us a follow at group thinkers on Twitter. You can also find us on Instagram. That's where we take and break out different sections of the podcast, the episode that you're listening to and just have further conversations. So engage with the guests that are on and, uh, and talk about what, uh, what we 've discussed on their episode of Group thinkers, we also help curate lots of other top content that 's going on in the nonprofit marketing ether on Twitter and Instagram, so at groupthinkers, you can also follow at rkd group do do us a favor check out the blog over at rkd group dot com uh, You can find most recent posts there uh, some things about connection and connecting with your donors that tie into conversations. Both with what we've talked about with Bill, but also others in the second season of Group Thinkers. So here you go. There's all the things up front. Can't wait to get to this interview. So let's uh, let's not delay any further. Here's Bill Weber from the Development Guild on Group Thinkers. All right. Well, uh, thanks for checking out this episode of Group Thinkers. I am uh, very excited. To introduce my friend Bill Weber on the podcast today, Bill, good morning, and how are you good morning, doing great thanks excellent excellent so bill we uh, you know we 've got a lot to to get into today um, we 've had some conversations and we 're going to talk a lot about uh, leadership in the nonprofit space uh, and you know some of the things that you 're currently reading as that uh, has has come up in our conversations, but I always want to start just uh, understanding your story and your background. So uh, share with our listeners, how, how in the world did you get connected into the nonprofit space? Well,
0: thank you. So let me start. I uh, After graduating from college, I became a, a teacher, loved it, uh, hardest job I ever had, most rewarding. Wound up in graduate school and studying history and education and social policy. So I was on track to become an academic, and it was a recession year, no jobs around, and didn't know what to do. And a friend of mine said, hey, you could be a consultant. I said, no way, that's, that's not a real job. And uh, it was $100 a day, and I was like, okay, I could try that out. And it, it turned out that I happened to have a unique blend of characteristics that, that worked really well. So i was the odd job consultant at a at a think tank so every other day they give you something that nobody else had a specialty in so for example it was preschoolers in australia one day nsf uh, national science foundation curriculum for engineers the next day and I, I, that was all cool and i did all of those and so that versatility which happened to be idiosyncratic for me was great for consulting so what happened was after a while i really you know, became a displaced academic. Um, and I like consulting better than going back into the job market. And there were a lot of transferable skills. So people ask me, well, how'd you go from being an academic to consultant? Well, there. so one was you had a um, sort of a, a research discipline. I mean, I really want to find the facts and have hypotheses and figure out the best I can in a world with imperfect information. Um, I know how to make a case because I had to do it for my th- doctoral thesis. Um, interested in everything around me, and so I remember in my doctoral thesis, my thesis advisor said, "Okay, tomorrow I'll come back and tell me everything the French did in 1812." And so I had to do that. <laughs> um, and, and so that's a little bit like consulting. So, and the last part was I happened to be an editor of a of a research journal as a, a graduate student, and there, as an editor, you work with other people's ideas, and that was really relevant to becoming a consultant because. Um, you've got to work with other people's ideas and make them better or figure out how to work with them. So all those were transferable skills. Um, so my wife and I started a company together. We'd been teachers together, went to school together. And um, uh, one of our earlier projects with the Kellogg Foundation, which was an incredible uh, experience. I worked with uh, leaders from Africa, Latin America, and the U.S., and it came together and looking, was evaluating your leadership skills. And after a while, I loved it. It was a great experience. And I kept on thinking, vision's not enough. They were focusing on vision all the time. And when I went back to my other consulting, what happened was, hey, vision without talent and money isn't going to get you anywhere. It just came over and over again. That's how I looked at it. So we reinvented the company, taking our Kellogg leadership skills and, and subsumed them into search and fundraising. So that's 600 clients ago. And now we work, uh, we work in uh, uh, two million dollar organizations and two billion dollar organizations, every part of the country, every sector. just thinking about it. I'm working with um, a homeless agency, medical research, uh, access to higher education and cultural organizations—all today. So that's the mix. We have 35 people in, uh, uh, based in offices in New York and and, and Boston, but around the country. So it, it's been a,
1: a great ride. And you know, I, I love one. I love uh, you referred to yourself as a displaced academic, uh, and and certainly, the those skills that you mentioned they're still very relevant in the work that your team does today at the development guild, you know, a research discipline, the ability to digest process information and make a case, being interested, endlessly curious and interested in everything around you and, uh, and then being able to work with other people's ideas. Uh, Do you think that now in the state that, you know, where your team works at the development guild, would you say that you're, you're, still in many ways an odd job consultant um uh i never thought of it like that
0: uh, i yes and no okay. There's a lot of jobs we can take on okay now we know better we know which ones have at least some conditions for success so you know if it's uh in in the uh, uh, we sort of go with, it, with our clients' ideas, but we have a reasonable idea if it's possible. So, you know, if they started from scratch and they want to get a, a you know, a Gates Foundation startup grant, it's unlikely. You know, we're working through it. So we can't work with everybody. Right. Um, but we try well. It's pretty eclectic. Yeah. and, and the only, uh, there There is issues and um, that... Uh, this is a very political world these days. And um, so occasionally we'll work with, well, so we have 35 staff now and um, occasion we'll come across a client that maybe a staff person for their personal and ethical reasons don't want to work with. And so they won't work with them. Mm-hmm. They're not comfortable with that. So we can't take everybody on, but we look for people who are ambitious and who need, talent and money to achieve your vision. And, and that's, that's a pretty wide deck. So
1: you, you know, you've had 600 plus clients, you've worked in organizations of all shapes and sizes and, and in many ways, Bill, I think that you more than most have a pulse on the state of nonprofit leadership on both sides um, of the candidates and those that you were bringing into the space, but then also uh, your conversations with board members, your work to recruit to, to boards or to find board members and, and members of organizations, how would you characterize the state of nonprofit leadership? Okay. Let's break this down. Thank you. Let's break
0: it down a little bit. So nonprofits are a big part of the economy. Um, So a lot of the research on nonprofits comes out of Johns Hopkins, and their recent data shows that after manufacturing retail, nonprofits is the third largest employer. And uh, i just looking at the study, half the states, um, nonprofits, there are more people in nonprofits than manufacturing. And in certain states, it's 15 to 18 percent of the whole population. So it's, it's a huge area. So when you ask me how to think about nonprofits, I think of that that large large area. Um, reminds me a little bit of if somebody said, "Gee, what what do you what do you think the average temperature is in the United States?" <laughs> so if you Google that, what they'll come back with is by state and by season. There's no average temperature. You can't get that. It, um, it's a nice little statistical sophomore tryout, but it doesn't work. So same thing with nonprofits. So assume when you talk to me in nonprofit leadership, I I sort of have to bring it down like the weather to sector. So you think of education, health, social services, religion. You also think of region. regions are very different in terms of their economics and their culture. And the, the third year is the type of job. So let me put all that aside, but that that's how it starts to break down, pretty sure. Quickly. So um, so let's assume it's all all together in one pot. Um, in a lot of ways, this is the best time to recruit nonprofit leaders. Um, there have never been more good ones out there, and good as you know, by their performance. Um, second, we're more able to invest in nonprofit leaders. They're getting paid more, and people and board members and senior staff. <laughs> realize the the value of talent. Um, From a recruiting point of view, we've never had as good technology and good procedures. So I I like to think this is a great time to recruit. But when I say that, I don't say it's easy. Um, There's a lot of competition um, and people move a lot. But I think people move a lot because of the system, not so much as
1: they're they're being overly uh, opportunistic. Break that down. So whenever you say move a lot, because the system talk, unpack that a little bit for us. Well, the, the biggest one are in nonprofits
0: are, and I do most of my, a lot of my experience right now is just talking about the resource development side. Mm-hmm. So, so let just start with that caveat. Well, campaigns have cycles. Beginning and end by definition, they're four to seven years. People get hired for a campaign and by the, by the, two thirds through the campaign, they're completing, they're, do, they're doing, they are not hitting the big targets anymore. They're cleaning up the campaign. There's nothing left to do they you're ready to go. So that's a, that's a systemic issue as well. Also nonprofits are not very good at uh, re- retaining their good staff. So um, when, this gets into recruitment too, but recruitment and retention are two sides of the same coin. So when I interview people from our clients on retention side, well, gee, why did you leave? They'll, they'll give, they'll say, it was well, it could have been the manager, it could have been the work culture, it could have been the mission, it could have been um, the commute, and it could have been the money, something like those. So um, it's usually a combination. Most likely it's the manager that's the most frequent one. And people always say money, but it's never the most important. So, if you turn it upside down, if I'm a recruiter and I'm talking to, to you, Justin, and saying, do you, you, do you like how you're getting paid? Do you feel treated treat well? Do you like your commute? Do you like working with people? Do you like the mission? You say yes to all of those. I say, good. Smell the roses. Have a good time. <laughs> but from a recruitment point of view, if you say no to any of those, I got I have a, a chink in there to move on. So, the system, um, for the most part, nonprofit managers have not invested enough in retention. That's why. Recruitment becomes an issue, and and last but not least, we also have a, a, a hot economy. So people now can move to other regions without a job, feeling they can get another job. So it's a pretty it's a pretty hot. Uh, it, it, it it there's a lot
1: of movement. This episode of Group Thinkers is brought to you by Holidays: The Myth and Reality behind giving in December 2018. Did you know that one in five donors reported giving less to nonprofits last December? I know that for organizations that we work with, things were great through November, even maybe the first week of December. And then compared to what we had traditionally seen in the last three weeks of December, things started to of dry up. I'm sure I wasn't the only one who noticed a sudden drop in donations compared to what we are used to with December. So, some questions started to pop up into the nonprofit marketing ether. Was it the tax laws? Was it the economy? Was it the government shutdown? Well, we decided to find answers from the donor's perspective. So, RKD Group partnered with McQueen, Mackin & Associates to conduct a unique study speaking directly to donors to find out why giving dropped so drastically last December. You can download the full white paper at givingindecember.com, find out exactly what donors had to say about their change in giving behavior and use that to build your strategies going into year-end 2019. So head over to givingindecember.com, download the white paper, And now back to group thinkers. Yeah, we certainly, you know, I'm based in Dallas and, and Dallas is certainly a hot uh, economy for jobs right now with the number of, of, companies that are moving in and uh, and the competition. You you mentioned that competition side. And so I'm curious uh, what guidance you've given in light of the competition, in light of the cycles, and really pressing into the retention side. What guidance have you given your clients to help them with retention? You do so much good work as a casting director to bring them someone to join their team. And you're trying to... Hopefully, land in a place where there's a, a, a marriage for a certain amount of time and uh, but knowing that retention's an issue what what guidance do you offer to clients um, to, to help them work through how to retain uh, good people well it, it, it goes through the whole organization so
0: uh, one of the things I like to see is uh, staff retention and recruitment as a performance indicator for senior management. So uh, it'd be great if all the senior managers and their performance evaluation um, they're looked at in terms of how are you retaining your staff, how are you promoting them, and how are you networking with other people to bring folks in. It doesn't happen very often. And, uh, and, and throughout the organization, so now we're in the LinkedIn world, which means all the staff can be recruiting all the time. In, the fact, in the fact, they are. And we also have glass door, So uh, staff who leave can comment on what's happened. So there's an employment brand now. So everybody's got to be involved. So if the whole organization has to be involved with retention, how they're perceived, is this a good place to work, try to address that. And it permeates the whole organization. It usually starts at the top, but it goes to the whole organization as well.
1: Yeah, that employment branding side, that is, um, that's big. That's big in, in the corporate space. That's huge in the nonprofit space. And, um, many times I think mission is not enough for the employment branding. You still have to, I was having this conversation with an organization that we worked with yesterday where even, you know, simple things like bringing your teams together and having them go through, um, you know, exercises to identify their Myers-Briggs or disc profiles or et cetera, and talking about those results so that you can understand each other better can help build a team and a culture. But then the, the employment branding side still has to sit as a layer on top of that.
0: Well, the mission's just not enough. And in fact, occasionally it creates a problem. So if, 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 uh, if there's a very visceral identification with the mission, you could have a situation where there's a sense of the end justifies the means. And, and as long as we're doing the right thing, uh, the management's not so important as long well as we're doing the right thing. And that, that, that could be a problem. Conversely, we see folks coming in from the for-profit area saying I wanna do something more meaningful in my life. Mm-hmm and probably have had a good experience as a volunteer and they think, well, gee, this would be nice to do this full time. Well, they don't realize a the reason why they feel such good as a volunteer is because the staff made them feel good <laughs> so a job to do that. And second, it, it's just different. Um, uh, you're at a desk or you're, you're just not feeling the joy all the time. Sure. The way they, they would. So, so,
1: Are there any particular, uh, particularly common areas or functions that, uh, what are the trending uh, functions right now that you find yourself recruiting in for nonprofits?
0: Sure, well, a lot of different ways. I'll tell you a story. I was meet, talking with the chair of a campaign at the end of the champ campaign, which was very successful. So he's really pleased, Sung Ho, looking at the budget, and he says, my gosh, most of your fundraisers aren't fundraisers. And, and what he was saying was he had thought a fundraiser was the person who asked the one person who asked him for money,
1: <laughs> right? That's
0: what the fundraiser was. And, uh, well, more than half of the people on the advancement staff were not, we did research, did stewardship, technology events, you know, all, all the apparatus going around the frontline fundraiser. And, uh, so in fact, the largest growth, at least now I'm just talking about advancement now, not false average leadership, is not front, it, 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 both are expanding, front lines expanding, but back office expanding more than front line. So again, technology, data analytics, stewardship is all expanding very a lot these days, as well as front line as well. I know that's, um, still
1: a, that's still a complicated conversation for many uh, senior leaders and and even up to the board level, when you're looking at adding new team members, the the softball is to go for the person that's going to make the ask without consideration of all that fulfillment that you just mentioned, uh, in research ahead of time, data analytics, the technology and infrastructure to be able to manage a CRM, to set up that person yeah. to, to make the ask. So that that's certainly something that we hear quite frequently. Well, here's something that comes to mind then. So um, if you look at the top
0: research universities in the country, let's say the top 50, almost all of them, the, the chief development officer, their background is in major gifts. Once in a while alumni, once in a while communications, Nobody in data analytics. I may be wrong, so I'm putting it out there. I'd like to hear people know differently. That's going to change in 15 years. That's, I, I'm starting to get asked for people, that, for these unicorns, the so people who do both equally good at data analytics and frontline fundraising. And my hunch is it's going to happen by natural selection somehow, that somehow somebody was a major gift officer, moved across the country. And the only job they can get was data analytics and somehow this unicorn was created. That's good. That, 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 that's, that's, that's some of the future. So we're going to start to see more of that.
1: Yeah. We're, I mean, we're, we're all analysts uh, at this point, you know, there, there is an element to, to your role. There's an element to my role where uh, data and analytics play into us understanding the effectiveness of what we're doing, how we can be more efficient at it, how we can predict uh, or forecast out behavior. And so that, that certainly is spilling over into every aspect uh, of the conversations we're having with nonprofits and, and as well as on the employment side. So uh, one thing that I'm in
0: moving towards is in every search, to make sure that in the pool of qualified candidates, there's some strong candidates with the data analytic background, whether or not it's a data analytic job per se. So I'll hypothetical was a museum director and they're probably being recruited because of the basis of their content, their expertise in certain, in, in certain um, curatorial areas. How strong are they in data analytics? So if we had six people, I want at least two were pretty strong as hmm. a, as to make sure they're in the pool, that, that's how I'm starting to deal with that.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's so crucial, and you know, it's something that, uh, as you know, we have people who come in. They might intern with us or uh, in an entry level role, and even as small as being certified in Google Analytics as a, as a starting point can go a long way. It starts you thinking through the use of of data and applying it towards whatever it is that you're doing. So, all right, so let me shift gears on you a little bit. So whenever I was doing research and um, looking at uh, the Development Guild site, looking at your blog, uh, looking at things that you were interested in, there was this one thing that stood out to me, and I love it. And you know I love it because we've talked about it, but um, you have a post, a blog post, uh, about what you're reading. And what you have been reading, and so I, I want you to want um, I'd love for you to tell the story that you shared with me about <laughs> about how that posted it up there. But then also, just um, I'm just curious like the the value of of that. you're an exceptionally busy person, uh, but you you're still making time to to learn and to educate yourself. So just talk a little bit about that. Well, um, you know, I like to read.
0: And, but I, I, in that blog, I actually put out the criteria. So literally nothing, I I try not to read anything political in uh, in the last 50 years. We'll start with that. Um, Because I have that every day. So I don't need to do that um, for my reading. For whatever reason, I don't particularly like fiction. I'll read one novel a year, but that's, this is my own time. I do whatever I feel like doing. So I like to read cookbooks. I like, well, it's not, I literally will read a cookbook. Um, biographies, because I was a history major. So I'll tend to history and biography and a little bit of self-help too. So uh, that blog came about because, um, um, you know, different people were asking me, well, what do, what do you like to read? And so I said, well, these are the ones that I, I happen to like and um, started to post them. So for example, right now, uh, I'm reading. I just just finished last night, "Men Who Lost America," which was like, how, where'd that come from? So I was at uh, George Washington's Mount Vernon was one of my clients, and I was in their book their their retail area. And I'm like, What's that? And it's really uh, the stories of the British leadership, mostly the generals and the political leadership during our, the war, our war for independence, and Got a totally different view. I had no idea about the internal politics in England at the time. There was a lot of disagreement about, about King George. I underestimated how they were fighting the French and the Dutch all the time. And they also totally thought that the Loyalists, the Americans who were supporting Britain, would rise up for them. They thought that would happen. They totally underestimated. A fascinating read. So I had a lot of fun. A little tedious. So like history, I don't think it's going to be be that good. Um, but then I also go um, go back and reread books I've liked before. And the next one up is is Moneyball, which I, I must have read it when it came out, soon after it came out as a summary. So I'm literally reading it to get away. It's a baseball book about how also, Oakland Athletics were com- as a small market team were competing against the Yankees. Yankees had five times their budget. And what they came up with new data analytics, they were looking at different values that the Yankees did and came up with um, high-value picks and good use of their money. And I'm reading it, and I said, it's just like search. You're looking for hidden value and then matching it up. So I, I I like it both ways. And the Brad Pitt movie is, by the way, it's a pretty faithful version of the book. So I'm not going to look at Brad Pitt again, but the, but the book is, is very good. So I'll, I'll do that next.
1: I love it. At the very beginning, you may not remember this part of our conversation, but you said that uh, you were interested in everything around you. And um, though you're still interested in everything around you, I mean, you know, and what I love about it is I I really do, uh, I think that that spills into the culture of the Development Guild. I think that that spills directly into the culture of the Development Guild and the conversations I've had with you and uh, Nicole and Danielle. I think that, a part of what makes you all so good at what you do is your interest in everything around you, and this insatiable curiosity to get to know the organization or get to know candidates, etc. So, well, I appreciate that. I, I don't know if my family would agree with that
0: curiosity. <laughs> I'm pretty, uh, but but you never know what I'm going to be interested. Might be a maybe a different, maybe a ver- variation of what you're talking about. So so. So, you know, we get inquiries every day and we sort of always will kick the tire and say what this is about. So the the Kellogg Foundation, which was a nine-year engagement, came out of a a two-day almost pro bono for an African uh, literacy training program that I helped with and and they got a lot of money and they came to me. So you never, from a business point of view, don't know what's going to happen as well. So. I think it's a good way to live. By the other hand, you have to be open and be disciplined about under what, what, under what conditions the clients can be successful. Because when they invest in a consultant, they, it's high stakes, they have a big outcome that they need, and they're investing their time as well as their money, and we feel very accountable. So, for example, so, so we, we want to have an outcome that's successful. So we don't go into it unless we think there's a, a 70% chance or more that it's going to be successful. Hundred percent chances aren't that easy. Interesting, are they?
1: Yeah, it's true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's layups are not the best highlights in basketball, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh well Bill like just three I'm sorry? let open three pointers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's Let's a that's a, a you know, that's better. But hey, if you're shooting seventy percent from the three, man, then you are uh, Steph Curry though, for sure. Uh hey, listen, as as we wrap up, just um How can people connect with you? How can they connect with the Development Guild? Uh, Where can they find you online? Well, thank you. So our our
0: website is www.developmentguild.com. We have an 800 number, Uh, 1-800-537-9011. My formal name looks like William, but now you can all call me Bill.
1: Um, and so we welcome all inquiries and questions of any type. Very cool. Well, Bill, I, I certainly appreciate you spending time today and uh, the chance to talk through some of the things that you're seeing in the nonprofit landscape. And I look forward to having you on again down the road. Well, thank you very much. Hey, take care. All right, y'all. That's the, uh, that's the chat with Bill Weber and uh, Insatiable Curiosity. If that's not the, the recipe for what is going to help us overcome some of these monumental challenges and hurdles that we're seeing in the nonprofit marketing space, I don't know what is. Insatiable curiosity. Bill talked about that uh, tied to what got him into this space, uh, how he and his team approach the projects that they take on. And... Uh, and also his reading habits. So if you're interested in, uh, in connecting with Bill uh, and his team, check out the Development Guild's website. You can find their contact information. He threw out uh, ways to contact them on the interview as well. But check out their website and, and would encourage you to open up a conversation with them. Uh, you know, Bill and his team do quite a bit of uh, individual consultation, especially at the board level. I know that many times I'll be in conversations with nonprofit marketers who are lamenting uh, on either side of a board meeting, either the run up and the preparation to how to communicate what is happening with their program to their board, to the aftermath of a board meeting and being reeling about some of the feedback or challenges. So maybe there are some things that uh, you know an expert like Bill could help with and helping you find ways to shift and make your communication more meaningful to the board so that they can understand uh, where we need resources, where we uh, are exceeding expectations, and what our focus is in, uh, in the next cycle. So there you go. Uh, again, be sure to throw us a follow at GroupThinkers on Twitter. Really appreciate you checking out this episode. Hopefully you scroll right into the next season two episode of Group Thinkers in your feed. And with that, I'm Justin McCord. Appreciate you spending time with us today. We'll see you down the road. Group Thinkers is a production of RKD Group. For more information, visit rkdgroup.com slash podcast. Special thanks goes out to... The production team, including Ryan Mellinger, as well as our content marketing team, Suzanne, Holly, and Carly, for their work on this and every episode of Group Thinkers.